0: This episode of the MedSort Podcast is brought to you by Arena. Arena works with medical device manufacturers to help them bring their products to market quicker and more cost-effectively through their cloud product lifecycle management system. Arena's product lifecycle management system allows every participant throughout product development and commercialization to work together in a centralized system and effectively keep track of product designs, engineering changes, and associated product information to accelerate the design and delivery and ensure regulatory compliance of quality medical device products. You can find out more at arenasolutions.com. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the MedTalk Podcast, where we discuss the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, Acting Group Editor of Life Sciences at Rapid News Group. Today I am joined by Charlie Rappel from QDOS, an organisation which tries to make information surrounding healthcare as accessible and easy to understand as possible. Some of the areas we cover include studies into long COVID and awareness surrounding that, and how it can be treated as a separate disease from COVID-19, but as well as the consumer side of things, we touch on what innovators and manufacturers and life sciences can get out of such a platform. So Charlie, thank you very much for joining us on the MedTalk podcast. Uh, before we actually get into the number of our discussion, can you just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and about QDOS?
1: Yeah, thank you. Hi Ian, hi everyone. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, so I'm Charlie Wapple, and um, I'm the founder of a company called QDOS, which is designed to help more people find and understand and and use research. Um, And it's something we started about 10 years ago, Um, my co founders and I have backgrounds in scholarly publishing. So we were working with a lot of journals and other academic communication materials. And we could see that lots and lots of research was getting published, but it wasn't always getting read, it wasn't always getting cited. And we could see this kind of big gap between all this amazing research being done and it making its way out into the wider world and actually changing people's behaviors or people's um habits and policies and 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 sort of improving life for the better so we thought actually what needs to happen here is academics need more help or researchers more broadly not just those in academia need more help to communicate their research and to get it out in front of all the different audiences who might be able to use it or benefit from it or apply it. Um, and, and obviously that's that's basically a marketing task, and that's not a skill set that necessarily goes well with being a researcher. So we set out to develop some kind of really simple tools and guidelines, and most of all a platform where people could come and quickly and easily sort of communicate their content to a, a wider audience. And we've launched that and we've developed it over the years. Um, And most recently, we've started doing um, sort of themed platforms where we're picking content and, and explanations of research around things like COVID or climate change. And bringing those together and really promoting them actively so that wider audiences can find that information and can find these kind of simple explanations of research and read it for themselves and kind of understand a little bit more about a topic that affects them in their life.
0: Let's come on to one of those themes, or a variation of one of those themes, because I think that's actually part of the discussion we're going to have. It's that you know, despite the fact that everyone likes to talk about as being in the post-COVID ele- elements of the pandemic, and they all say, "Well, it's over, lockdowns have been lifted, the vaccination rollout has been a wonderful success," etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There is people are still getting sick with COVID. And then there's the consequences of long COVID, or is there? Because you actually uh, highlighted a couple of studies to me. Well, one study reports that 70% of people who had COVID continued to experience at least one symptom. Then there's another one that puts it at 35%. You, you also mentioned that it's, it's, a, it's a huge health challenge, but it's, it's, it's also still something of an unknown. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it, it's, it's funny you say that because I've just had COVID myself. Finally, two years into this pandemic, I've finally uh, gone down with it. Um, and this is after having been working for months on this kind of plain language um, showcase about things to do with COVID, explaining all the research. So actually, it was really interesting. The first thing I did was go and dive into all the content we've got on Kudos about this um, and try and get myself a little bit more knowledgeable about it. Um, and I I think particularly because I've had had it quite badly and I'm still really suffering from it like a month in um, I have started to get very interested in in long Covid which is really still just a kind of shorthand for uh, lots of things that we don't know you know we don't know whether it is um, an offshoot from the original infection that people have had and whether it's whether the sort of symptoms that we seem to be seeing in people who've had COVID are caused by the virus itself, which some some research seems to suggest this. So um, you can see that there's there's been lab experiments done where they've Um, given mice, the virus and those mice end up having some of the same sort of long COVID symptoms, even though they haven't had any treatment or anything. So that suggests it is the virus itself. But it could also be that some of the treatments that we're offering um, are causing some of those kind of longer term symptoms because it's been noted that those long-term symptoms are similar to what we call chemo brain or chemo fog. Um, so the, the sort of um, symptoms that people get after they've been having cancer therapy. Um, it might also be that long COVID is particularly happening to people who've got other conditions. So maybe um, if they've got if they're suffering from obesity or if they're suffering from something like ADHD. Um, there's also been suggestions that it's a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder and that particularly um, people who suffered quite a traumatic experience of being very ill with COVID, um, that may explain some of the symptoms they're having later. Um, but the other aspect of it is that is to question whether it is just a, a hangover, if you like, from that original infection or whether COVID, uh, longer COVID, as we've been seeing it, is in fact a separate infection. Um, and that does seem to be an area that we're doing more research into and that seems to be quite credible because um, you do see people who didn't have a particularly bad experience of COVID when they had had it the first time who then are continuing to have quite bad um, symptoms so you have to question then is it the same illness and the same infection or have they got something else so I think there's a lot um, a lot of research obviously underway still Um, and as you know with all kind of science you don't draw conclusions you have to keep gathering the data and throughout this pandemic we've been in such a um, accelerated sort of pace of trying to capture information and learn from it as quickly as possible but it is still really early days.
0: I mean I'm I'm glad you've kind of uh, brought about whether it's a a separate disease because I think in in many ways people always just said oh you've had COVID that's when you've had the infection and understandably so because the, the first instinct of of public health measures was to reduce the rate of infection so you reduce the rate of transmission and stopping people getting that way but it, it feels like almost everyone's forgotten what the side effects can be whether that was uh, I think when there was discussions around government policy for example when we're opening up the the, the economy and allowing people to mix again whether whether the, um, the consequences of the after effects of people getting COVID were, were properly thought through I think it's safe to say that Measures would probably have different considerations with the uh, with this kind of information at at public health's fingertips.
1: Yeah, I do think it's important that people can understand research for themselves. I'm I'm really passionate about this actually because I think any many of the ways in which we hear about research are kind of filtered through several layers. You know, they're filtered obviously through the researchers themselves, but possibly also through the the PR team of their university or through policy institutions or through government. Um, And by the time that information gets to us, obviously then through the media, it's been vulnerable to many different agendas. And I do think there is a lot of value in people being able to connect directly to the research and to the researchers um, and be able to make their own informed decisions. And I, I, this is a sort of roundabout answer to the point you were making. But, you know, we there, there was a lot of high feeling throughout the pandemic and as different measures were put into place to try and control the virus. Um, and a lot of that was emotionally informed, perhaps rather than evidence based. But that was in large part because people didn't have access to the evidence. And indeed, the evidence didn't exist in a lot of cases. Um, And I think um, that is a particularly uh, acute sort of circumstance in which all these things came together. But even in um, other sort of public health challenges, um, I do think it really helps if people can make their own decisions or at least inform themselves and feel that they are not out of control of the choices that are being imposed upon them, that they understand the logic that's gone into it, the the rationale behind those choices. And then if what they've learned from the research doesn't seem to align with what you know, government policy is is, seems to be basing itself on, then of course, you know, by all means, you can protest and you can push back and you can have perhaps a debate about it. But I, I do think there is a need for people to be able to connect directly with the research for themselves in a way that they can kind of understand what is informing and shaping things that are affecting their lives.
0: Yeah, you've actually given us a nice little crossover to when they were talking about common sense and individual choice there. If anything, what you're doing allows
1: people to make a more informed choice that's that is a really big part of the goal of what we want to do at QDOS. part of it is just that i think there's a lot of people who enjoy learning about research who want to geek out on science and and find out all sorts of things that are going on whether or not it affects them Um, but i think too there, there are people who are um you know suffering from certain conditions or living with certain conditions um and interested to understand more about the science that's happening in those areas. But obviously, the the scientific literature is almost impenetrable to um, non-specialists, and indeed, we see the, the summaries and, and the material that we put out on QDOS as being useful not only for, you know, patients and the public and people like that, but also for industry and for policymakers and other people who aren't the researchers themselves, but in a professional capacity, they need to understand that research. They might be able to put it into practice or, or use it to shape some some policy or guidance, um, or they might it might be that they're building on it in in a commercial uh, capacity or whatever. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons why it's really important that um, everybody has the opportunity to understand what is happening in science and um, what what progress is being made, what is being explored, what are the recommendations um, for the rest of us. And I think it's it's just it's just really important to um, do that proactively rather than assu- rather than assuming that. Um, you know, it's fine. We've published a scientific article that will at some point make its way out. And, and, you know, people will learn about it from that because 90 percent of the world will not learn about it from that.
0: The way I actually uh, see your organisation and the information that you provided to me ahead of our conversation and of, and of course during the process of this is that you can probably see yourselves fitting into a wider health strategy. You, you, you've already mentioned being proactive. And it feels like that in, in terms of to tackle the current health challenges that the UK and, and even worldwide face is the need for more proactive healthcare, more and I think now people are probably become a degree more health conscious as a result. This is probably the perfect time to try and get such a platform across.
1: Yeah, do you know it's um it really feels like we're at a big watershed moment as as a civilization on this i think it's partly that um the pandemic again did sort of awaken in people um a, a, an interest in the depths of medical research and information that they might not have had previously and obviously that just happened at such a scale so suddenly you know you had all these people becoming sort of armchair experts or certainly uh, armchair followers of of all sorts of aspects of medical research Um, But I think there is this this wider um, societal shift to people, I guess, sort of almost feeling entitled um, in a way that they might not have done in the past to say, you know, what I don't have to um, just sort of sit back and wait meekly to, to be for somebody to finally come and tell me what's going on in the halls of academia you know i can i can go and look for myself i can go and find out for myself um and i think it's partly being driven by a lot of um interest in recent years in in what's happening with taxpayer money and where that is um funding or subsidizing research i think people have become a lot more interested in the outcomes of that and is that um, you know are, are we getting access to the information that is emerging from from what has been funded there um, but I think too it's also just a, a generational shift with with people um, beginning to feel more sort of ownership and agency around this sort of thing and more um, engaged generally as as individuals um, so I think it's it is an exciting time and I think Um, obviously this is something that I've been working on for 10 years but I I do see that um, there has been this quite big surge recently in interest in this kind of material and you can see that um, through a number of different lenses really obviously the usage on our site that we're seeing of people more people coming to view summaries of research there but you can also see it in just things like the way when you google something you now get a sort of plain language summary effectively often of of the topic popping up on the screen so it's it's a kind of bigger trend I think that we're part of.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the plain language thing because I was thinking back to the time when I I was doing my master's because I did my master's about a few years after I did my undergraduate degree so going back into that to that um how can I put it that environment of you're dealing with academic text when you when you're just used to layman terms you know Communication texts that go to the public, it is quite a challenge. So, deciphering that information is a really big part, in you know, or, or almost translating that information to the public is a really big part in making sure that people actually understand what's going on.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I I, I want to be very clear that there is a role for academic or sort of more technical specialist language. You know, it's a it's a form of shorthand within academia, where the people that you're talking to know what you're talking about or within research beyond academia as well, out in the commercial space as well, you know, that that is an important way of communicating so that you're not having to explain every single concept to people who totally already get it. Um, So I think there's absolutely a role for that sort of more specialist language. But I think there just has been this big gap. um, And it's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of different drivers for why there hasn't been a big focus on this and it's probably not the time and place to get into the incentive structure for academia and how it's all based on people putting out scientific publications. That's um, a different but podcast. Exactly, that's a different <laughs> podcast. But there has been this gap, and um, but I think there's been a lot of work recently to fill it and a lot of recognition that people in the wider world are interested in this um, and it's actually really interesting that it is, I forget now which one, but there, there is, um, uh, it's part of the UN Bill of Human Rights, even, that, you know, ev- everybody should have access to science or, or access to the same levels of knowledge kind of thing. So it's, it's something whose time is really coming. And there is um, not only a sort of widespread expectation now that people should be able to understand broadly what is happening in, in science, um, but also that there are benefits of them doing so. And one of the things we're really focused on at QDOS or really excited about is that, um, you know, we, we think there's real potential to speed up the positive effects of research in the wider world. You know, if um, you can get a set of recommendations. I think there was, there's was there been studies done that says something like it takes 10 years for policy recommendations in healthcare to actually take effect from the point when the researcher says we should be recommending that everybody does x to the point when it actually is being prescribed or or recommended as normal out in the community it's 10 years i think and And we think there's such an opportunity to speed that up
0: sorry Sorry, sorry, Charlie, just come in there because you you mentioned us speeding up and and i think i'm probably about to ask the question that you were going to answer anyway so apologies about that but the how much of what you did you think can actually speed up that process of 10 years is it a case of when when they actually
1: initially read it they just didn't understand what what was being proposed or I think it's just it's the, the nature of how communication happens is a very slow trickling process and you know you you as a, a medical researcher come up with a recommendation for um, a behavior that people should adopt let's say um, and you you publish that in your scientific article and now already there's a a great drop off in the likelihood of that being seen by all the right people. Obviously, if you if you have the, Um, sort of connections and and the wherewithal and so on you're going to also try and communicate that directly to organizations that you think should be adopting that recommendation but it all comes down to your capacity to do that your confidence in that kind of communication of putting yourself forward and going to policy agencies and saying I think you should be adopting my recommendation your network your credibility all sorts of factors are at play here Um, and so one way or another and this I'm not an expert on the study that said it took 10 years and I've probably even got that figure wrong but it is a very long time frame and there's lots of sort of um, you know leakage in it so that that's why it's taking so long whereas I think um, what really helps is if you have the capacity the tools the guidance the support to communicate directly right at the beginning to the broader audiences to whom you want to make that recommendation so that you can sort of close the circle if you like yes you can also make sure that it goes through the slower sort of more political approaches and gets into policy guidelines and things like that. But you can also just tell patients straight off the bat, this is what you should be doing. And I think there's, you know, if you can fill in some of the gaps in how communication is being done, you can accelerate um, awareness of that recommendation and therefore uptake of that recommendation.
0: I just want to close this little circle, uh, particularly before we move <laughs> on to the, the the industry side of things, because we we started off talking about long COVID as an example of the, of the of the research that you've been deciphering or breaking down for the uh, for the general public. Can you um, can you give us a little bit of insight as to what research has been put out there into long COVID? That I know we probably mentioned one or two aspects already, but is there anything in the detail that almost surprised you when you were when you were looking through this?
1: Yeah, I think um, one one of the things that I'm I'm lucky to have in in kudos and and obviously QDOS offers this to the, to the whole world for free is this kind of um, a picture of the research across a really wide range of fields all coming together. So in our COVID showcase, we've got public health research, we've got research about hormones and metabolism, we've got Research about mental health and all these different aspects that that are part of long COVID, um, all being kind of summarised in the same place. So I've found that a really helpful way of really reading around the subject, and and kind of putting that together a little bit in my head and thinking, right. So and this this is all really important in terms of understanding what it is that is causing so-called long COVID, um, because we have to make the right therapy choices for people, right. So so the challenge is. Is it sort of something that is a, a psychiatric disorder, in which case we might be looking to how we treat psychiatric illnesses, and are there particular treatments there, like probiotics, that we might want to use in helping people with long COVID? Um, is it akin to something like a cardiovascular disease, if the you know the, the issues that people are having, um, in which case what are the treatments that we offer there? And, and, you know, one study that I was looking at was talking about yoga being prescribed to cardiovascular patients to gradually increase their tolerance for exercise. Um, is it, um, like, uh, uh, we know that some of the symptoms are to do with fatigue and memory issues. That's also really common in ADHD. That's also actually common in in patients with advanced cancer. So do we prescribe something like Ritalin, which we will prescribe in both of those scenarios? So understanding the causes of of long COVID, is obviously really important to making sure that we're offering people the right therapies. And one of the things that, I have been most interested in is is that sort of interdisciplinary approach and looking at all the different fields of research um, that have something to to contribute and something to tell us um, in in that context. And I think this isn't only about healthcare practitioners being able to understand that and patients themselves. It's also about the practicalities of, you know, if you're an employer and you've got staff who are struggling with these symptoms, what do you need to know? What's your duty of care to them? What, how do you need to plan your business and things like that? So, I mean, going right back to what you said at the top, something somewhere between 35 and 70 percent of people who've had COVID are still struggling with one or more symptoms. Um, and this is possibly the, the big kind of, you know, possibly has a bigger impact even long term than the pandemic itself has done. So we really need to understand what is causing that and, and how to treat it.
0: Thanks to Charlie for her thoughts so far. We'll be back for some more of her thoughts after a word from this week's sponsor.
1: PTC by itself, I mean,
0: uh, is a Boston based company. Uh, we are uh, leading uh, when it comes to digital threat uh, digitization, let's say. So, uh, probably a lot of people know PTC from Pro Engineer in the early days and now now called creo and then ptc has a very broad portfolio now uh, across the the value chain thinking from iot solutions like thingworks ar solutions like buforia uh, plm solutions like windchill and, and now arena uh, and also cad solutions as i just mentioned like creo but also a, a pure saas based cad solution like like onshape so very broad portfolio serving multiple markets uh, including life science and that was a message from this week's sponsor, Arena, a PTC business. Now back to this week's episode. You've addressed the the challenges the, that the healthcare system is going to face, but that means then um, the industry is going to have to step forward with its innovations, for example. Uh, I, I'm intrigued to explore more about the relationship that, well, not, not so much the relationship, but what QDOS can offer in terms of helping Industry get along the way because this information's out there for all. Would you say that you're a pretty good start in place for, say, innovators that want to repurpose something and just say, well, how can how can this be used in in different areas?
1: Yeah, I think so, and I think industry really has stepped up to this challenge, right? And there's a lot of really interesting and exciting stories about developments that have been massively accelerated um, because of the pandemic, where people have really pulled together and powered forward with something that might otherwise have taken 10 years to to complete. So I I think there's already some some fantastic um, stories of how industry has has kind of risen to the occasion here. And yeah, I think um, we're telling a lot of those stories within QDOS and therefore it is is a good um, starting point for people who are uh, looking at either what research is coming out of academia and what the implications of that are for, for the industry that they're working in, or who might want to see what what other parts of industry are doing and how that's being received. Um, and one of the things that we've put together recently as a sort of part of our overall COVID showcase, we've then also put together um, a set of content about the technologies that have advanced substantially or, or, or accelerated more quickly um, as, a, as a result of COVID. And I think that's that's a great place for industry to be looking to see what sort of um, things have been happening in academia so that we can start to see that tr- translation from the academic research environment into the industrial research environment. Um, and one of the things, as I said earlier, that that we do at QDOS is, is explain things in plain language. And that's partly so that the general public the media etc can understand things but it's also really to help facilitate that translation of knowledge from academia into industry because there's a lot of um sort of cross-boundary or cr- cross-sectoral benefit to be gained from some of the developments that have taken place um i'm trying to think of some good examples here for example there's been some really interesting use of optics during the pandemic so mm-hmm. um uh let me try and dial this back to the beginning of the story. (laughs) Um, So one of the things that obviously was really important during the pandemic was a lot of testing. So we needed people to be looking at microbiological samples, um, and that requires really good microscopes, and really good microscopes are really expensive. Um, One of the things that has come forward in leaps and bounds is the use of artificial intelligence um, to basically help us create Low, lower cost microscopes, um, and it's all to do with um, the the need for I'm not I'm going to get this wrong now. So there's a there's a need for uh, multiple lenses in a microscope that focus on the different colours mm-hmm. in visible light, and that stops that's what stops the samples getting blurred when you're looking at them under a microscope. Um, and obviously those different lenses are really expensive. So Some researchers came up with a really interesting new solution where they shone each of the primary colours separately onto samples. And then those images were added into an AI network, and machine learning was used to add colour to the images. And therefore, a lower cost microscope could produce the sort of full colour images that a more expensive microscope would normally do. So, there's some really interesting things like that that you suddenly think, wow, that is going to unlock progress, not just in analysing COVID samples, but across the entirety of the research landscape, right? Like so many different forms of research are uh, are reliant on really expensive microscopes. Suddenly you're going to be able to do things um, in developing countries or other countries where they haven't been able to get these kind of really expensive microscopes. Suddenly it opens up the ability of many more people to do that kind of research or it opens up access to that kind of medical support to all sorts of communities. So there's been lots of progress like that where I think um, sometimes those, um advances have been have come out of academia and there's a great opportunity now for industry to take something like that forward and um accelerate the the production of that kind of low-cost ai driven microscope at scale um, but there's also developments like that happening in the industrial uh side of things as well um that i think have great potential to to move all sorts of things forward more quickly so yeah there's there's and particularly i think with um with AI at the moment, there's a lot of really interesting things happening, and there's a lot that any researcher can learn to think. Oh, actually, how could I use that same sort of technique with my data or, or my use case?
0: I mean, you, you've touched upon two things there. It's not just about what the the end user can do in terms of what what technologies at their fingertips and what industry can do to you know, appeal to that, but also the process and discovering new adv- new advances, whether that's in Drug development's probably the best example we can have here to apply it to life sciences. Mm. Uh, but I I am curious, you know, from my perspective, given that I edit MedTech Innovation, we like to have a look at hardware that goes into, you know, assembling medical devices. Is this platform good for, good for those for those kind of people? Just I'm just I'm just thinking in terms of, okay, maybe I need to actually look at a new sensor because this is the kind of technology that we need to Uh, need to be looking at going forward.
1: Yeah, exactly. One of the um, pieces of research that we've summarized in our latest COVID portal is uh, about a new sensor, which is based on graphene that's used in a handheld reader. um, If you sort of picture it a bit like a laser thermometer, that is a, this new sensor is quickly able to detect the presence of a disease, um, and it sort of gives a reading in about five minutes, um, and it's non-invasive and blah blah blah. And it, this could really, I mean, this that kind of thing, you know, is it, going to be pivotal to reducing the the seriousness of of future viral outbreaks, right? You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't have any mechanism for testing. And then rapidly, we developed the sort of tests that we're all very familiar with, which involve, you know, sticking things down your throat or up your nose and so on. But the idea that actually we could just sort of hold a a handheld device um, and, and point it at each other is a real leap forward in the willingness of people to be tested and the speed at which we can get mass testing underway. Um, And so, yeah, um, we've got reports of that kind of thing in Kudos as well, where really basic science, really groundbreaking stuff. I mean, we had, excuse me, we had a, um, we've had some really interesting stuff about, in fact, just to move away slightly from your point about um, industry and and, um, that kind of basic science approach, is also, I think we're we're seeing a real shift in patient self-testing and people's willingness and sort of literacy in doing that kind of thing you know years ago the idea that you would that you would at home test yourself report that result um you know have that result then sent to your healthcare practitioner but also to people you've been in contact with and all of that you know we, we were not accustomed to doing that and we wouldn't have been um comfortable possibly with adopting that kind of thing but suddenly you know, we've had this massive leap forward, which I think is probably 10 years worth of progress in terms of patient participation, um, and home health, etc. Suddenly, you know, everybody is used to using their smartphone as a healthcare tool now. And that begins to really unlock loads of things for industry in terms of what kinds of things we can expect patients themselves to take control of. And, how comfortable we can expect them to be in sharing that information and so on.
0: Uh, I mean, I'm glad you used the smartphone for the as an example, but it's not necessarily the, the smartphone if you follow me, because it's it's just a almost. I'll, I'll take med- the medical device industry as a as an example. Now, it's probably they've probably got to remodel how they think in terms of how these devices are going to be used. Not necessarily the healthcare setting now. It is cell testing, so along with that. These devices have got to be compact. They've got to be easy to use. They've got, there, there is um, as, as well as challenges. There's a, there's a real opportunity to remodel basically their product ranges.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think we've we've suddenly got this appetite or this willingness on behalf of the public that i think we can capitalize on i think we'll probably see more people willing to be part of trials and tests or even um you know sort of focus groups and workshops exploring you know which of these things would you rather hold in your hand kind of thing um and, and i think there, they you know coming back to what i was saying earlier really there is a, a a massive um increase in public interest support for science engagement with science and that i personally i think that will be really powerful in helping um shape the the next generation of scientific progress
0: well Charlie, thank you very much for your time uh, today because it has been a really, really engaging conversation. I think we can go on forever, but um, I'm I'm wary of your time, my time, and of course our listeners' time. But I would like to finish on one thing, and that's if you've got anything else to add and how people can access QDOS and what they can expect to find on there.
1: Yeah, well, do you know, I hadn't realised how much time had flown by, and um, <laughs> but I like the fact that I just made this sort of really big bombastic statement. And so I think we'll we'll leave it with that. That ends it perfectly. So in terms of how you can find this information, we're at growqudos.com So it's G-R-O-W-K-U-D-O-S dot com. Come and find us, have a look at all the information we're making available to explain research to the wider world.
0: Charlie, thank you once again.
1: Thanks Ian.